Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I give you a tenth. The word of the Lord. Thank you. On this first Sunday of Lent, the Lord be with you. Sorry, a little house cleaning here. Oh, it's really stuck. I'm sure, first of all, surprised that you're here this morning. Thank you. Uh, I walking over, knowing how icy it was, even in the parking lot and so forth, I was flashing back to 2020 and just thinking, well, today's going to be one of those days when I preach to the three people in the sound booth, and uh, which was always a painful experience for all of us in, the, in those days. And... Uh, I'm really glad you're here, really glad you're joining us online. You know, at Waterstone, we like to talk about this time of preaching as a time of listening, and you're multitasking, right? You're, you're listening to God's Word and what's being reflected upon, but you're also talking to the Holy Spirit. And even as you listen and talk, 
the Spirit brings other things to your mind, and I just want to freely invite you to go with those things and pray for the Ukraine this morning. And uh, pray for our, our student ministries. We've had, we have 50 kids at a retreat in Ponderosa this morning with Elliot, and they're partnered with a great church on South Broadway called South Fellowship. So around 90 kids plus staff, we are mindful that if you study the history of revivals, that they typically begin with youth. And so pray for revival. Pray for busted open hearts, uh, especially as they're meeting right now and having their final session together this morning. So pray for our youth and that God will really work in their hearts. So sound good? Talk freely this morning with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, come Holy Spirit, come. Send your Spirit among us to lift up Jesus Christ and that we would see Him, no matter how long we've walked with Him, see Him even more clearly today. We thank you for keeping us safe and warm on a cold, snowy day. We thank you for this snow, which we will drink in the dog days of August. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for the symbolic whiteness of snow, which reminds us of how we stand before you, totally clean, totally forgiven, totally right in your sight. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Kate McHale Slaughterback, born 1893. She uh, grew up to love wearing pants and working outdoors and shooting guns, which, as you can imagine, in 1893 really put her outside of social convention. She was fierce. She was married and divorced several times. She went on to become a trained nurse and, interestingly, a taxidermist. She was also, rumor has it, into the bootlegging trade. On uh, October 28, 1925, she was on her horse with her three-year-old adopted son, Ernie, and she was traveling down to a lake near her farm in Hudson, Colorado. On the way, she heard these noises, and she assumed they were duck hunters because that was a common occurrence. She wanted to go say hi, but the noise was not duck hunters. She found herself in the midst of a migrating den of rattlesnakes. So she got off her horse, pushed the horse away along with Ernie on it, and she had her 22 rifle, and she emptied it at the snakes, which only made things worse. And so what she did was grab a nearby signpost that had fallen down, was rumored to have said, uh, no hunting, and she started whirling and swinging and hitting. And two hours later, Kate had killed 140 rattlesnakes. This picture of which went viral in the 1925, whatever that looked like, but it made her an international sensation. Did I mention she was a taxidermist? She took the skins and she made them into a dress, which is still on display at the Greeley Historical Museum. Kate uh, McHale Slaughterback died in 1969 at the ripe old age of 75, and you can guess her epitaph, Rattlesnake Kate. Now, I heard about this story because our founding pastor, Nick Lillo, went down to the Denver Center for Performing Arts last week to see a play that's been written about her life by one of the founding members of a Colorado band named the Lumineers. 
And this play is about Kate trying to find a love that will last and her trying to forge a future for those like her who live on the outside of social convention. Welcome to the Genesis story. Now, um, I tell that story not because I love rattlesnakes. I hate rattlesnakes. And like you, I think I've had enough encounters with rattlesnakes. But for Kate, what that rattlesnake encounter became was what we all want, a defining moment. A moment in our lives when we know that we're seen, that we're known, that we're loved. We have, none of us, we're not immune from this relentless compulsion to justify our existence. G.K. Chesterton, the great British journalist, put it this way, all people matter. You matter, I matter, but it's the hardest thing in theology to believe. So this morning, we are going to work with Rattlesnake Kate on our mattering. The Genesis stories, they answer the big questions in life. The first one is, where do we come from? And the Genesis answer is, God spoke uh, the world and everything in it into existence. And then the next question that follows in our everyday reality is, what in the world's going on? And the Genesis answer is, well, we broke everything in the world, and that exists. And uh, God, at that breaking moment, had a plan. And that plan was to call out one man, and from that one man and his wife, Sarah, his name, Abraham, to make a nation, an ancestry that would have a certain place of land in the world, but would grow as a nation in order to demonstrate to all nations God's life, God's love, and God's uh, heart to all nations. He chose Abraham and he blessed them. And then Abraham passed that blessing on to his son Isaac and his wife Rebecca. And then today, we're going to see it passed to the third generation, this promise, this mission to the person of Jacob. Now, I'm particularly uh, kind of fond of Jacob. I think Jacob is the closest thing to the 21st century post-Christian culture in which we live. If you want to understand a bit more about us, study Jacob. Why? Because Jacob had a lot of problems. Jacob lived with a tremendous amount of anxiety. I think he would fit very well into our culture. I think he would be one who begins to understand as an adult that you're going to need more than a cup of coffee from Atlas and a workout at Vasa to get through the stuff we have to get through. Jacob. And what we're going to see this morning is some of the how. He had an encounter with God that radically reoriented his life towards two ways of living that really transformed him. The encounter pushed him toward awe of God and allegiance. So the big idea of Jacob is he had an encounter with God that radically reoriented his life toward awe and towards allegiance. So let's go. You ready? The story of Jacob. It begins in the womb, a particularly crowded womb. He's a twin. And uh, Isaac and Rebekah, after a season of infertility, Rebekah conceived, and she had these uh, twins in her womb. But even early on, she knew something really, really like different was going on because the twins were jostling and jostling and jostling. And I love the way the text, I think it's in Genesis 25, it says, she needed to go inquire of the Lord about this. 
And as the Lord usually did with those who were in the Messianic line, He talked to them directly. And He told Rebecca, you do have twins in there, but it's more than boys. You have two nations in your womb. Which, stepping out of the story, is still going on today, fighting the jostling. And God told Rebecca about these twins, the older will serve the younger. Okay, it goes on. They're born, and Esau comes out first. That's the oldest. His name means Harry, H-A-I-R-Y. I'm not going to say anything more about that. And the second one born is Jacob. He comes out grasping the heel of Esau, holding on to it. And thus, his name in Hebrew means supplanter, the one who trips people up, the deceiver. Esau loved the outdoors. In fact, his friends gave him the nickname Cabela's. And uh, he loved to hunt. He loved to eat what he shot. Or, no, he didn't shoot. They didn't have guns yet. Didn't think that went through. But uh, Jacob loved the indoors. He was a quiet man. He stayed inside. His friends nicknamed him Ikea. So you have these two very different uh, approaches to life. And they grow up. And um, this one particular occasion, Jacob decides that he's going to steal the birthright from the oldest, Esau. Now, I want to make two comments about that. This is important to understand. First, I think that Jacob, his, who, his mother favored Jacob, Isaac favored Esau. I think that the relationship of Jacob and um, uh, Rebekah was so close that Rebekah told Jacob about the older will serve the younger. And I think Jacob had been looking for an opportunity to steal the birthright. And the second thing I want to say about it, stealing the birthright's a big, big deal. It's more than just when Isaac dies, he gives a longer blessing to the oldest son and everything's divided equally. No, in that day, the oldest, the firstborn, got everything, inherited all the land, all the wealth, and the reason they did that was to keep everything together, to consolidate the family wealth and pass it to the next generation. You kept it together, and the one who would be in charge of it was the oldest. And so this is a big deal, this birthright. Well, Esau's out hunting. He didn't get anything. He comes in. He's famished. And Jacob indoors has been cooking the, the infamous red stew. And Esau comes in and uh, says, I'm like, starving with hunger, blind with hunger. Give me a bowl of soup. And Jacob, you know, he sees the opportunity. He says, I'll give it to you for the birthright. And Esau, in a moment, I mean, how many of you have ever made a good decision when you're really, really hungry? He says, I don't care. Give it to me. And Jacob now has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He gets everything. It goes on. Isaac's about to die. The text says he's old and he's blind, but he knows he's going to die. So what he does is he calls in Esau because evidently Rebekah and Jacob have not told him about this incident, nor has Esau. And so he, knowing he's going to die, he's going to give the blessing, pass all the firstborn stuff on to Esau. So he calls Esau in and Esau, instead of calling a family meeting, gave everything square, he says, okay, I'll take the blessing. But first, Isaac says, I want you to go out and I want you to hunt because I want it, and the text says, a tasty meal before I give you the blessing. So Esau goes out hunting. 
Rebecca and the next 10 over had been listening to this. And uh, you read the text, you know for sure she had a plan. She was ready for this moment. And so she says, uh, Jacob, it's what's interesting in this text, as we read, it says all in Genesis 25 through 28. <laughs> Jacob doesn't say a word. This is all a Jewish mom engaged. And she says, what we're going to do is I'm going to prepare a tasty meal the way Isaac likes it. I'm going to take two young goats. And with their skins, we're going to put those on your arms and your neck. Because did we mention that Esau's hairy? And so we're going to put Esau's clothes on you. And you're going to do your best voice imitation of Esau. And so they do. They dress him up. They put the skins on his neck and on his arms. And he goes in and he tries to talk like his brother. But even old and blind, Isaac says, wait a minute. You sound a lot like Jacob. So uh, Isaac says, come here, let me give you a kiss. And he, I'm sure, puts his hand around his neck, feels the goat hair. He smells the old spice on Esau's robe. And he says, oh, okay, it's, he, it's Esau. And he blesses Jacob. Esau comes back in. He is, what shall we say, mad. Not only that, you know, he'd been duped out of the blessing, but just this sibling rivalry throughout. This is like the peak of sibling angst right here. And Esau says, I'll kill him. I'm going to kill him. So Rebecca had plan B in place. She goes to Jacob and to Isaac and says, look, we've been talking for a long time for Jacob to go back to where my brother Laban lives, and we're going to hear more about this next week, but I'd go back and get a wife. I don't want him to marry a Canaanite because a Canaanite woman will draw his heart away from the living God. So go back to Laban, find a wife. And because Esau had said, I'm going to kill him, I mean, they must have did this within a half hour. I mean, Jacob flees. So here's where we pick up the story in Genesis 28 that Marie read for us earlier. Jacob left Beersheba, that's his hometown, and set out for Haran. That's where Laban lived. That's where their family kin is. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now from this, I want to point out three things that will make us a bit more tender towards Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver. First of all, it says he's reached a certain place. And you read the text and you, you see that phrase six times, certain place, certain place, certain place. So you think, what's the author saying here? I think what he's saying is he's in the middle of nowhere. There's no other features. There's no other name. Later in the text, it says it's near a city called Luz, but he is in Nowhereville. And he has a stone for a pillow. Now, put yourself in Jacob's shoes. What would make you sleep head on a rock? Probably if you had nothing else, right? Probably you need to keep some clothes on to stay warm, and you have nothing else to use as a pillow. I mean, Jacob is in the middle of nowhere, and he's got nothing. And then it says, uh, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. It's, a, it's an unusual Hebrew phrase. It really talks about more the sun has gone back in. And the idea is that it's like, this is a really dark place. And I think symbolic, whoever's writing this saying, this is like the worst and darkest moment of Jacob's life. Your heart has to go out to him. First time probably away from home. What a way to go. 
And uh, he's in the middle of nowhere with nothing, and he doesn't know what's next. And this is, you know, the most surprising thing is how, how would you ever get to sleep with your head on a rock? But somehow he does, and he has a dream. We see this dream in verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. So resting on earth all the way up into the the sky, into heaven, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So in this dream, what we're going to see is that Jacob sees three things and he hears three things. The three things he sees are first a stairway. Interestingly, this is the only time in the First Testament written in Hebrew that this word is used. It's the only time. And so uh, linguistics scholars have uh, traced its entomology, where it comes from, to the Akkadian kind of worldview and religion. And in the Akkadian worldview and the way they practice their religion, they would build these what were called ziggurats or these towers and around the outside of these towers, cycling upward, were these stairways. And in their religion, the way that you worked yourself into God's favor and had relationship with Him is you climb these stairways and get to the top, and hopefully you meet with God. That's the word. It's this idea of uh, from the earth getting to heaven, this is the stairway that goes up. And then the second thing he sees is angels. Now, it could be two angels. It could be two million angels. We don't know. But on the staircase, there's angels. Now, I want to tell you a couple things about angels. You know this, but we often forget that, first of all, seeing an angel is a very scary experience in the Scriptures, Hallmark cards and Hallmark movies aside. C.S. Lewis was quaint when he said, Whenever angels appeared in the Scripture, they always had to say, fear not. And people never had to say, who are you? They were massively glorious, majestic creatures. And the purpose of angels was to convey God's messages to human beings and His majesty. So whenever God wanted a word to be given, you know, you think about the birth of Jesus or these particular moments in Scripture when God would want something very important communicated, He would send angels with these messages, and in their heavenly glory, they would uh, speak for God. Now, I just want to press into this a little bit in terms of some application. You know, in our secular post-Christian culture, the idea even of angels that are this kind of angel is countercultural. I mean, we like to think that we live pretty much alone here in the galaxy. If there is a God, He's very remote and He's inaccessible. We're here on the ocean of aloneness trying to control life ourselves. That's our secular culture right now. That's the worldview in which we live. One of the things you have to continually decide in your walk with God is do we live in a crowded universe crawling with angels or do we live alone in a universe with a very remote God if there is one you choose this vision this dream would sense that God is very much interacting constantly with heaven and earth Heaven has to do with earth, earth has to do with heaven, and all the time God's Word is coming back and forth, and He is, he is engaged. He is engaged with crowded angels in the world. 
So he saw a staircase with angels ascending and descending, and then he sees God. At the, if you go on to the next verses, it talks about God. And one of the great debates in, uh, among Hebrew scholars is this preposition in Hebrew because it could be translated one of two ways. It could be said that God, the Lord, is above the ladder and making this happen, or He is standing it's either standing over the ladder or standing over against Jacob. So he's either on top or he's down with Jacob looking at the ladder. I kind of lead towards standing down with Jacob because my two favorite Hebrew commentarists believe that that Robert Alter and Everett Fox think that God's standing with Jacob looking at the staircase. So I'm going with them. You can go where you want. And uh, the point is, I think, the same. The same as this, no matter if God's standing above the ladder or down with Jacob looking at the ladder, God is engaged. His word is coming down. He is interacting. Heaven and earth are brought together because the Lord comes down and works on earth. Those are the three things Jacob sees, and then he hears three things. And we go on in the, in the story. I'm going to read this because this is what Jacob hears from the Lord in this dream. There above it stood the Lord. That's that word above. Uh, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. There's the land, part of the blessing, part of the promise. Your descendants, that's the make a great nation, will be like the dust of the earth. So many. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And you're offering. There's the mission to show God's life and love to the other nations. I am with you. There's a promise. So you have the promise, and then you have the promise, I am with you. You know, to this point, the only thing Jacob could say for sure is that his mother loved him and no one else. But now God says, I'm with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What Jacob hears is three things. The promise is now in Jacob's generation. And indeed, you, you'll hear next week, Jacob would have 12 sons, and these would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they begin to move from a family to a nation. There's the promise. That, and the second thing he hears is God will be with him. He's going to make it. And third, he will watch over him and protect him, even on to getting a wife, which he's about to go and try to do. All this, God's presence is promised. So let's look at Jacob's response to this dream. You go on to verses 16 and 17. He has a response of awe and a response of allegiance. We see the awe in verses 16 and 17. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There's none other than, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The word afraid there is this kind of word that does mean a bit of rattlesnake. It's, and you see this throughout Scripture whenever people have an encounter with God, like Isaiah or like Ezekiel, it freezes them. They're paralyzed. It's a dreadful thing. And uh, even when Jesus walked the earth, there's a, in the Gospels these certain moments when he told the disciples to cast their nets on the other side and they caught hundreds of fish. And Peter, you know, walks up to Jesus afterwards and says, uh, I, I just have a sense now of who you are. 
That you control nature that way. And then Peter says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. There's this sense in which we know when we encounter God like this and we know who we are and we know who He is, there's dread to be in His presence. There's this like huge, huge respect. That word afraid is a mixture of adoration and holiness and like respect. Is there anyone in your life that you would say you've had awe with? That you were you know, very respectful of and very much wanted to be with them and like them, but whenever you were around them, you like said, this person's really important and it shakes you a little bit. For me, he's, it's a guy and he's, the reason I'm standing on this stage before you this morning, his name was Haddon Robinson. He used to be the president of Denver Seminary. When uh, Jan and I were in Syracuse, New York, and I was tired of doing what Elliot and Ethan are doing this morning in these snow camps where you don't sleep for 72 hours, I was ready to move on. And I wanted to go learn to preach because I could not preach my way out of a paper bag. And so at that time, Haddon Robinson was the guru of preaching. And he just happened to be the president of Denver Seminary. So Jan and I did the Abraham and Sarah thing. We moved out here not knowing a soul. And uh, here we are. But Haddon Robinson, let me tell you a story. So whenever I was around him, and this was true of anyone. Wherever Haddon Robinson speak, you could count on 100 seminary students in the audience, no matter where the church was. We were worshipers of Haddon Robinson. But whenever you are around him, awe. So my second year of seminary, uh, I was in student leadership, and I was asked to give the challenge to the faculty. It was at the old Cherry Hills building, which is now Brave Church. And uh, during the convocation in the fall, they had all these festivities, thousands of people in the audience, and this poor little student would get up and say, faculty, here's what I think you should do this year. I had to do that. So I get up, they're all up in their regal robes, standing on the stage. I had to stand down on the floor. I look up, now understand, that Haddon Robinson had been so influential on me that I knew certain things. I knew kind of some of his words and some of his mannerisms. I knew that he preached without notes. I knew, you know, all these things that if you're going to be a good preacher, you do it like Haddon does it. And so I worked, and I knew this at the end of the spring semester, I worked all summer on a five-minute message, five minutes, every day, every day. I get up there. I look up and I see Haddon Robinson. And for the life of me, I cannot remember a single word that I prepared. It was the most humiliating moment of my life. I had to walk back to my seat. Fortunately, I had stuck a copy of the speech in my Bible, grabbed it, walked up. Haddon Robinson's head just went. Haddon Robinson is the reason that I'm here today. That humiliating moment aside, he transformed my whole life. But whenever I get, so I, I go to New England, I pastor a church there. Haddon has transitioned to a seminary called Gordon Conwell. I have him come speak to my church twice. And I could not have a conversation with him. I get tongue tied, I get nervous, I'm sweating. It's just bizarre the impact. I mean, yeah, enough awe, right? Let me ask you, 
When it comes to your relationship with God, does He impact you that way? Do you have awe in your spiritual diet? Do you have a sense that when you talk to God, when you encounter Him, that like Jacob, there's something so unique about God, something so holy and different, something so He's God and I'm not, that there's this catch that even though you adore Him and love Him, He's so incredibly amazing that there's some awe. How do you get that? Because if you have awe towards God, it'll transform you like it did Jacob. We don't much get transformed with God when we treat Him like a buddy all the time. When we have awe, that's when behavior changes. That's when you move across the country 2,000 miles. That's when you talk like a person and you read like a person and you think like a person when you have awe. Do you have awe in your spiritual diet? Let me make one suggestion about getting some. The primary way, unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God seemed to talk directly, I'm not saying he doesn't do it or can, and I would never put God in a box, but I would say this, that in this age, this side of Jesus, the primary way God talks to us is through the Bible. This is the awe manual. This is not just a holy book that we set on the shelf as a good luck charm. This is God talking to us. This is God revealing Himself. The way we get awe is to have God revealed. Who He is, what He's done, and what He's doing. This is the awe manual. If you want to see God, read this. Listen to this. We always are mindful that before the invention of the printing press, all devotions were heard, not read. So do you get in a group and do you read Scripture together? Do you read it with your family? Do you drive to work listening to Scripture? Can I just ask you bluntly, not to get on all like a guilt and shame trip here, but if you want this to be the awe manual, how does your time spent with awe compare to the time you listen to the news? or the time that you watch Netflix? Do you want awe in your spiritual diet? It's not rocket science, nor is it necessarily even a stairway to heaven. It's this book. Awe. I mentioned revival among the young earlier. I am convinced that when people have awe of God, that is a precondition to revival. And what you always see when a revival breaks out is people's hunger for God is stirred up and they have to read the Scriptures. One of my favorite revivals, you can read it about it yourselves, by a man named Evan Roberts when he ministered among the coal miners in Wales, 1904-1905, the Great Welsh Revival. Amazing stories. You should read some of them. But one of the most amazing things is Evan Roberts, just a layperson, just a young college kid who, who had awe of God and began to talk to people about it. And he started to meet with coal miners 
and read Scripture. All, they wouldn't, he wouldn't teach. He wouldn't do anything. They'd just say, hey, do you want to read the Bible together? And they sat down and they read the Bible. And God started moving through the reading of Scripture such that <laughs> this began to spread through the coal miners. And the coal miners wanted Evan to be in the mine with them underground so they're in the dark all day. And he said, we want you to start doing this at the beginning of the day. And they wanted more and more and more holy awe from the awe manual that they were getting into the mines at four in the morning. So they went in the dark. For hours he would read Scripture. They would work and they'd go home in the dark. But they had the light. They had the light. This revival, I mean... My favorite story is the one who suffered the most during the 1904-1905 Welsh revivals were the mules because they couldn't understand the commands of the miners anymore because the miners had stopped swearing. Let me ask you again. Do you have enough awe in your spiritual diet? You see, Jacob had an encounter with God that radically reoriented his life toward awe. The second thing that this uh, reoriented him, we see in verses 18 to 22. I won't read this to you. You can read it again. We've heard it. But Jacob's allegiance goes to the top, right? He's, he makes a dedication. He says, uh, first of all, I'm going to build a cairn. That's what we call them in Colorado. He took the stone that he slept on. He poured oil over it, which in that day was a way to just mark things and say, man, this is a moment. This is where I met God. I'm going to call this Bethel. This is the house of God. And he poured oil over the rock, and he marked the moment. Now, I want to say two quick things about that kind of dedication. First, what we often call that in our tradition, especially at the very beginning of a spiritual journey, is baptism. We practice baptism by immersion as the way to begin uh, when you've had an encounter with Jesus and you see him for who he is and you want to follow him the rest of your day. You, and Jacob poured oil over a rock. We say, get in this tub over here and be buried with Jesus and be raised to new life and follow him the rest of your life. If you're here and you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus, man, what a way to mark a journey, right? We would encourage you and invite you to be baptized, to completely identify with Jesus, and to publicly proclaim to this church and to the world that you're going to walk with Him the rest of your life. We're having a baptism on Easter Sunday. Man, it's going to be awesome. We're already pumped up on Easter Sunday, but baptizing people? So if you're here and you want to be baptized and mark your journey like Jacob marked with oil on a rock, Please, out in the hub, at the info barrel, you can uh, sign up to talk about baptism. The other thing I, I want to encourage you is a form of sp a spiritual discipline. The way that we mark moments can also be, as we go on in life, through an ancient practice called journaling. Have you ever heard of journaling before? Journaling is just like daily or weekly, or I kind of do it like quarterly and go down to the Sacred Heart Retreat House in Sedalia, and I'll sit for a couple hours and just recap the last few months, and I'm writing things. Lord, here's what I've learned. Here's what you've done. Here's what's happened in my life. You're, you're capturing your journey. But what I found is that, so I've been journaling pretty much since I started in ministry. Even in high school, I was journaling and just writing things down that I thought God was doing you go back to those now like 40 years later, and what do you see? 
You see moments when oil was poured on a rock. You see moments when, man, this is like terrible, but then five years later, you look back on it and you say, oh, wow, Lord, what have you done? You look back 30 years later and say, oh, my goodness, he was with me. Look at, look at this now. Journaling. So, Jacob had an encounter with God. And it radically reoriented his life toward awe and towards allegiance. By the way, as you read there, Jacob was still Jacob. <laughs> Did you catch the word if in his like, Lord, if you really do this promise, then I'll tithe. I'll give you money. You know, all this stuff. Let me just say quickly, we don't have time to trace this too much. It's never really a good idea to use the word if with God. <laughs> when it comes to your allegiance, right? Just get rid of that and do the obedient thing. Now, that's the story of Jacob. A, an encounter with God radically reoriented his life towards awe and allegiance. Two takeaways that uh, I want in our hearts as we come to the table of the Lord in a, in a few minutes. First, for those of you who like Jacob, and I know there's some here, I know there's some watching, who find themselves like Jacob in a certain place, right? Feeling alone, struggling, like one of the hardest places in your life. We get to those places and it's really hard to see. Not all of us get a vision of a staircase, right? That God's interacting with the world all the time. Sometimes God can seem so remote, so silent. We feel like we're all alone. I want to encourage you this morning, as we talked about with the journaling, to keep walking. Keep going one step one hour one day you know it's in colorado we have a sense of kind of the way journeys can look sometimes they're called 14ers right colorado 14ers you get to the top my favorite one is beerstad and i know you 14er people you say that's a wimpy one i don't care um you get to the top of beerstad and you can see the parking lot and you can see how people look like ants by their cars. And Beerstad, especially uh, one section, is just switch back, switch back, switch back, switch back. And when you're walking those switchbacks at 13,000 feet, you think, I'm going to die. Like all you can see, you can't see past the turn. How many freaking switchbacks are, sorry for that language, but that's what I'm thinking when I'm doing it, right? You get to the top and you say, oh. I see how all this kind of fit together. You know, my friends, there's only one person who lives on the top of a 14er all the time, so far above history that he sees how all of it fits, and that's Jesus. And one day, we will have a better view of what our switchbacks look like when we're with him. But for now, keep walking. You know, I have a little thought experiment for you on this. Sometimes when we go through life and our health fails or we lose a loved one, we lose our job, just whatever, and we get in one of those switchbacks and we can't see around the turn, we get angry, and rightly so. As I told people at a funeral yesterday of a 17-year-old who died of a drug overdose, you know, their parents sitting, you know, uh, 
Sometimes we can't see around the turn and we get angry. And I encouraged the group there yesterday, look, God's big enough to handle our anger. We should be angry. This hurts. And He gave us tear ducts. He's the one that gave us tear ducts. We should use them. But hold on to this as well. That that same anger, you know why we get angry, right? We get angry because we know that God has infinite love and infinite power and He could have done something. We know it. And we get angry. And that anger is presumption that God is powerful and loving. My encouragement to you this morning is to also hold on to that same presumption on the other side of the pain. That even on the other side of the pain, we can know that God is loving and powerful. Hold on. Hold on. One day, we'll be on top of the 14er with Jesus and we will see a better view. Trust Him before the pain. Trust Him after the pain. Last thing I would say, if you're in a certain place, hold on. The last thing I would say is God's not going to give up on you. I mean, Jacob, man, he was a character. He cheated his brother. He deceived his father. And he was just a struggler in life, full of problems and anxiety. And yet, God did not give up on Jacob. He came to him when he was asleep. He came to him after all these mistakes he'd made and he was suffering the consequences of his own choices. God came to Jacob. And I'm telling you, that grace is what makes Christianity different than any other religion, right? Every other religion, you do have to walk the staircase. The Ten Commandments, the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of the Buddha, you are walking upstairs and you hope you're good enough to get to the top and meet with God. Christianity says, no, it doesn't work like that. God comes down. And He meets us where we are. He gives us grace. And He says, I will never quit on you. Now, the question is, how can a holy God do that? How can He remain holy and still engage with sinners? Ah, oh, glad you asked. This story reappears in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, a guy named Philip who would become one of the 12 disciples, he meets Jesus and he's so taken by him that he neighbors. The awe leads to neighboring. And uh, he goes to his buddy Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I've met Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like West Virginia. Or, you know, sorry if you're from West Virginia, but uh, it's like, you know, like nothing can come out of there. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so there's context there. And Nathaniel, Philip says, come and see. Come and see. So um, they, they meet, and uh, Philip says, Jesus, here's Nathaniel. Nathaniel, here's Jesus. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, wow, you are an honest man. Like no guile in you. You're the opposite of Jacob. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I, I saw you before this encounter sitting under that fig tree. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. But whatever it was enough, whatever it was, it was so private that when Jesus said, I saw you there 
it took away all intellectual doubts from Nathaniel about who Jesus is. And then at the end of that encounter, we read these words from Jesus. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Very truly, I tell you, you will see what? Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. There's the preposition on the Son of Man. Not to, not going up, on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus' point, I'm the staircase. I'm the gateway to heaven. You believe in me, you will know God. I'm the way. Folks, you know, sometimes it's hard to believe in God. And we wrestle with doubts. But I'm convinced that we can often see God as our creator. Sometimes it's hard to understand if there's a heaven or hell. But I think most of the time we can be convinced there's a heaven or a hell. Folks, I think sometimes that, you know, even the whole virgin birth of Jesus and that from the womb he was ruling the world, wow, that's like incredible. But you know the hardest thing to believe in this world is that we matter. That we're more than just a cog in the machinery of the universe. That we're more than just a sack of flesh and blood in the mass of humanity. That we're more than just a pixel on the screen of history. We matter. But that's the hardest thing in theology to believe. And that's why Jesus says, I'm the staircase. I've come down. He says it this way in Hebrews 12, verse 2. He said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, Jesus was on that cross, and He said, on the one hand, it's death, my death. On the other hand, it's the joy of seeing my people walk in forgiveness. What shall I choose? He chose you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. He broke it. And He said, this is My body broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, Remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, This cup represents my blood poured out for you in a promise of forgiveness. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes.